Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Hey, good morning, West Side. Uh, I want to add to that list of announcements. Um, just because we need a couple more, obviously. Um, I, so I, I'm preaching this week. Uh, we're going to talk about Noah this week. We're going to talk about Abraham next week. And then for the, the two weeks after that, um, we're going to have a couple of different folks come in, uh, coming in and speaking. And oh, one of the things that, that came up in our first Community Pulse meeting was... Um, just the value on hearing from multiple voices. And I want you to know from me right off the bat that that is a high value for me as well. No one person has a monopoly on the truth. We need varied voices. I love getting to be up here. I love preaching. I love teaching. But I also need to hear it, and I need you to hear it from someone other than me uh, sometimes. So um, in, an, in an effort to um, start to diversify the voices that we're, we're hearing from, um, yeah, we're going to have a couple of different folks uh, here towards the end of October. We'll have a couple others in December as well. So just so you know, that's, that's coming ahead. If, if you're like, man, how many weeks in a row are we going to have to listen to this guy? Only one more. So that's, that's the answer to that, that question. So um, yeah, I'm excited excited for that. You know, we left off last week in Genesis um, chapter 3, one of the sadder chapters of scripture, but with a a note of hope, seeing the way that God continued to move towards his people. And yet we were left with this tension, right, between the way of the serpent and uh, and the better way, that way which God has uh, put forth. For us. And there was this, this lingering question of how is it going to go in that tension between uh, the way of the serpent and the way of God. Which one is going to win out? Is there going to be uh, a tendency towards one or the other for, for humankind? Chapter 4 tells the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers who, uh, at, when at odds with one another, um, a situation that ended in murder. Cain kills Abel, and it's not just about that one murder that happens, but if we follow Cain's line, it turns out a murderous person leads to a murderous line. We get the story all the way down through Lamech, who becomes an even more murderous individual, and things are devolving quickly from the perfect picture that we had seen painted in chapter 2. And so this week, what I want to do is um, take a bigger chunk, chapters 6 through 9, looking at the story uh, of one of the most famous characters in scripture, Noah, whose name sounds a whole lot like Nuach, which is the Hebrew word for rest, the Hebrew verb for resting or ceasing. We'll come back and reflect on that here towards the end. And there's, there's an interesting flow to this section of scripture, these four chapters. If things continue to devolve, the question is, 
how then is God going to respond? How is God going to react to things going poorly? And there are really three big movements. We could outline it in a number of ways, but there are three big movements through these four chapters. There's one, the reality that we are living in, in 6, 1 through 8. There is then the response of God in over a course of a couple of chapters there, 6, 9 through 8, 19. And then the result, that which we still see at work today. A reality, a response, and a result. To, to get a sense of the reality of the situation, I wanted to plop into chapter 6, verse 5. Here's the reality. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Uh, when a writer in Hebrew is wanting to make a point, um, there is often a redundancy, a repetition to language or key ideas and themes, and I think verse 5 may cover all of the bases on that one. How great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. A pretty absolute diagnosis, and not a real pretty one at that. And again, similar to last week, when we saw the fall, and God had said, if you eat from this tree, you will certainly die. In that day, you will die. And Adam and Eve go and eat from the tree, and we go, oh no, this is the end. And sure enough, it's, it's not the end. We ought to feel similarly here. Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. And God put an end to things. Not so much. Our endings are not the same as God's. The Lord instead regretted. What a wild word for God, right? The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And with them, the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. The reality is this. It's the rebellion of mankind and the regret of God pairing together. It's interesting the way that the rebellion of mankind is talked about here. We like to think in terms of individual acts, either good or bad. And in a modern Western frame, that, that is our primary, that's our primary lens. In a more individualistic society, we like to think about this person did a good thing or a bad thing, that that was morally right or morally wrong. And while that is certainly some measure of the backdrop here, I want to be very clear that that is not what the text really says. The text talks in much broader terms. How great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts 
of the human heart was only evil all the time. We're talking about a larger trend away from that which God had put in place in the first place. If God created this perfect world, a rightly ordered world, what humanity has come to embrace is then a self-oriented disorder. A, a grand, like, taking into our own hands, a taking matters into our own hands. It's not that morality is not an issue here in the text, but the, the scene is clearly much larger than that. God is saddened by the fact that humankind has not taken him at his word. On offer is this good and beautiful life in this world that he has created, and instead, mankind is going the way of the serpent, is going the way of death and destruction. And God, in response, isn't angry. Is there some anger here? I would think so. But that's not the word that gets used. We see a troubled parent. Lord regretted that he had made human beings. He was deeply troubled. And again, the word regret. Sometimes we get to, uh, in our like theologically crafted categories, we get too smart to be able to read the Bible. Uh, and we like to think about God being in control or uh, sovereign is our, is our big, like God in control word, right? God is powerful and God, God ordains this and that. And if we're not careful, those categories can close us off to seeing the, the empathy of our God in the text. To seeing this God who is actually deeply interested in, far above and away and over all, yes, but not in some like detached deistic way. Instead, God, as, we, as we've seen in these last couple of weeks, and here again, God is ultimately interested in relationship with his people. And he's worried about the way that it's going because he knows this life that I've put on offer to you, that is the way it ought to go. And if you would in faith accept it, you could walk in the beauty of it. You could feel the blessing of it. Remember how many times we've seen the word blessing in the first few chapters. And it saddens God to see his people living in anything but that. The rebellion of mankind is matched by the regret of God, a God who pays close enough att attention to care and be saddened. And yet saddened to the point of uh, acting on our behalf, perhaps in a counterintuitive way, but still on our behalf. Because at the end of this little section, 6, 5 through 8, and this is something we'll want to pay attention to as we read through uh, the book of Genesis, throughout the Old Testament in general, there's a stylistic thing here that happens. At the very end of this paragraph, where I regret that I have made them, we get verse 8. But Noah, 
found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But we, we get in a number of instances over the course of the story of Genesis, a pretty dire picture painted over the course of a paragraph or, or a section or, or whatnot. And then at the very end, a little hint that that's not the end of the story. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's, it's the gospel just like snuck in there in a little literary device. This is not the end of the story. We ought to expect it all to be destroyed at this point, but that's not how God's going to work. Instead, we get the response. The reality is the rebellion of mankind and the regret of God. The response then is the righteousness of Noah and the remembering of God. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. And as such, he sort of stood out like a sore thumb, right? <laughs> Not hard to pluck out. But in what sense was Noah righteous? Why, why was he blameless? Well, the text tells us in three like pretty clear instances here. If you look at Chapter 6, verse 22, it says this, Noah did everything as God commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 5, just a couple verses down, Noah did all that the Lord commanded to him. A couple more verses down, verse 9, they came to Noah and they entered the ark just as God had commanded Noah. Noah is the first creature to understand the creator-creature relationship properly. God says, and we respond in obedience, and that then opens up the doorway to this life that God has. We take things into our own hands, and we start to go down a path of pain and difficulty. We obey God, and we find ourselves in a different situation. It's not, that, it's not that the chaos will go away. It's not that difficulty will not come for us. That is not at all the promise of Scripture. And said so Noah, in faith, just decides to obey God, and he stands out to God as such. The righteousness of Noah is embedded in his obedience to God, a willingness to submit to that which God has asked. This is the first character that we get to actually see this from in Scripture, and we ought to be excited except for the instance in which it takes place, right? The earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, essentially, I'm going to restart this thing. We are going to reboot. God is going to recreate. And he does so by bringing the waters of chaos. In the ancient Near Eastern world, like uh, a flood, uh, the, the sea in general was considered uh, this like force of, of chaos. And so for a flood to come upon the land, and the way the text describes it as the, the, the flood comes from rains above and a swelling of water from below, and all of a sudden the ground is covered in 
what they're considering at that time chaos, a thing that could not be avoided, could not be uh, one that one could not be delivered from it on their own. But God provides a way. God provides an ark. Has Noah start building a way long before we see the first drop of water fall? And you can imagine the snickering. You can imagine. Uh, the perspective of the neighbors, like Noah has really lost it. I had a weird conversation with him last week, but now he's got the, he's got the building materials and everything, and he has gone round the bend. Building away, building away, building away in obedience for the circumstance that God has promised. And it seems like to a certain point in the story that this is going to be the end of all things until at the very middle of like the literary, the, the literary center of the whole story kind of comes in at eight verse one. This is after 40 days and 40 nights of, of rain upon the earth. You can imagine it might've smelled a little bit on the ark by this point. And eight one tells us this, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. It rains 40 days and 40 nights. They're there for another 150 days. They've still got a couple of months of birds coming in and out and trying to figure out when this thing is going to end, and in the middle of all of that, God remembers. Another funny word, right? Another funny word to associate with God. Did God forget? Not so much. But when God remembers, this is another like important theme to pay attention through to throughout the Old Testament. That when God remembers his people, he's about to act on their behalf. When God remembers his covenant with his people, he's about to enact it. Remembering is not just, not some mere like cognitive activity. Instead, it's, um, it's a verb that carries um, some volition with it, that carries some will with it. God called to mind his people sitting out there on a boat, and he's like, this is not going to be the end. And it is this remembering God that we begin to see and get to learn more about throughout the rest of scripture. When God remembers, he's about to show up on behalf of his people. We're reminded here in the character of Noah um, that faith is not easy. It's not an easy project at any point along the way. Um, but it is the call of God upon our lives, and it is rarely more complicated than obedience to what God is asking of us in the moment. It's easy to turn faith into some big ethereal concept, like a, do I have faith or not, and in our, um, in our 
perspective, we often, by faith, we just often mean like a mental assent to like some beliefs about God. And it's, it's not really that. It, it's, it's more so obedience. It is allegiance of life. And Noah embodies this. It's not at all an easy step that Noah takes. It's simple obedience, complicated obedience, but simple obedience to what God is asking. God then remembers his people. The reality is the rebellion and the regret of God. The response is the righteousness of Noah, the remembering of God. And the result is what I'm going to call the never again of God. We've met, we've met our third or fourth time in the story that really should all come crashing to an end, and remarkably, it does not. If we drop into chapter 8 and verse 20, we could see this playing out. 8.20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. They've all come off the boat at this point. Built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And you just have to feel bad for those animals and birds that made it that long through all of the flood and then got sacrificed. Like, huh. That's tough. <laughs> Sorry, guys. At least they get a shout out in the text. <clears throat> Rough, right? The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. This verse is intended as a, as a callback to the original situation, to the reality that led to this destructive flood in the first place. Notice what has not changed. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, humankind has not changed. The condition of the human heart has not improved. And this is so important for us, right? God has not said, oh, now humankind will behave better and I will not have to deal with them in the same way. That is not what it says. It is not humankind that changes, but God who changes. And again, we, in, in our unchanging God-like theology, sometimes we, we have a hard time just reading what the text actually says. There was a God who was so upset with his people that he decided to wipe them off the face of the earth because they... They were missing it. They were missing it. And it gets to the end of that project and says, that was too much. I'm not going to ever do that again. Not because you got your act together, but because I don't want you to experience that level of suffering again. Never again. Never again. Again, it sounds almost sacrilegious, but I like to think 
of God as being in process, as God like learning a little bit and changing as the situation unfolds here. God resolves, this is not going to be how I deal with my people ever, ever again. And all of a sudden, a story of destruction, no doubt, all of a sudden turns into a story of chaos turned recreation. If we turn to chapter 9, verse 1, then God blessed Noah, and we are all of a sudden back into Genesis 1 language. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, see if any of this sounds familiar, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. God is recreating. The, the fear and the dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and every creature that moves along the ground and on the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you just as I gave you green plants. I now give you everything. It is a recreating story. Interesting that at the end of God's creating in Genesis 1 and 2. He rests. And now at the end of his recreating, he has this figure, Noah, whose name is Rest, here to lead the charge. It's beautiful at every, at every point. 9.6 says this. Here was the main issue up to this point. is that God's people started killing each other. And again, murder here is seen not just as like some like morally wrong activity. Yes, it is that. But the bigger point is this. Whoever sheds a man's blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made humankind. It's not just a matter of moral versus immoral acts. It's God has set up his image bearers in the world to be a reflection of him to the rest of the world. And what, what happens when one treats another poorly is that image, that reflection gets marred. It gets broken. It gets not seen clearly in a way. And God's like, I don't want that to be a part of the project anymore. As for you, verse seven, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Genesis 1 should be ringing in our ears at this point. And yet, even this little recast of the creation story is not the end. God takes it one step further. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you with every living creature that was with you, birds, livestock, wild animals, everything that was on the ark, every living creature on the earth. I established my covenant with you. Never again, there it is again, never again will, I, will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. What is wild here is that oh, what it takes for a covenant to be legitimate is it, it takes two parties, right? It takes activity of one on one hand and the other on the other hand. 
Two parties have to be involved for a covenant to be legitimate. Yet this here is completely unilateral. God is the one making all the promises and fascinatingly enough, none of the demands. He said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, which is ancient Near Eastern speak for I'm hanging up my bow. I'm putting my weapon away. The God who in chapter six responds passionately That passion has not gone away. That desire for relationship with, that heartbreak for his people, that part has not gone away. But what God says is, I am going to hang up the weapon that I used for this. Never again am I going to go back to those methods. It's a literal hanging up of the bow. It goes on the hook and he's never going to take it down again. Because humankind has gotten their act together? No, they haven't. Still, same situation. But God's like, I'm not going to respond like that ever again. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds upon the earth, the rainbow appears in the clouds. I'll remember my covenant. I'll remember my covenant. I will act on your behalf between me and you and all the living creatures. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever you see a rainbow, you should think of it too. This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth, between me and everyone else. Even though everyone else does not hold up their end of the bark. God's recreating work here forges a path forward in light of the ongoing reality. In spite of it, in full knowledge of it, the reality of chapter six is no different than the reality of chapter nine, except that God has said, I am going to try to make this work again for the sake of you so that you can know (laughs) the life that I have called you to. And if by this point in the story of Genesis, it's starting to sound like a broken record of God moving always towards his people, no matter what, that is a great thing. This is the broken record that is scripture. It is the skip. It is the the recall every single time. Not that humankind is eventually going to get it together and God's going to like move us towards some, some positive end and then God will finally be pleased with us. It's that no matter what, no matter what instance we find ourselves in, God is always on the move towards. God is always forging a path forward, a, a path that we may get our shovels out and try to, dri- to, try to dig trenches. We will do everything in our power to destroy the path that God moves forward for us. And yet 
in that exact moment, we will find God putting the stones back together, putting the path back together. I've heard that message before. Yeah, we have. And you know what? We need it again. And we will need it next week as well. And the week after that. I want us to think back and then to think forward as we, as we wrap up today. I want, I want you to think about two questions. One is this. In what circumstance have we seen God work where we have thrown in the towel? Because this is a moment here. This is a story where God could have and technically should have thrown in the towel. And it's not the first time in the story that that has been the case. But where have we seen God get active in a place where we have given up? Have we grown numb to the fact that God never throws in the towel on us? Have we let it become some nice little footnote to our lives rather than the fundamental theme of who we are? On the other hand, what is the area of Chaos, what's the wild sea in your life right now that you need God to remember? Call to mind and act upon. Because sometimes it's not clear. Sometimes it's not terribly clear that God is on the move on our behalf. But if we learn anything from these first few chapters of Scripture, is that whether we see it or not, God has a deeply vested interest in relationship with us. For reasons that really never, they never really hold in our mind very well. It doesn't quite make sense. To, to be hurt as many times as God has been hurt in this story already, you and I would have thrown in the towel. We cut off relationship for the sake of this, that, and the other. Some of that is good. Never God. God always on the move. God always remembering. Will we allow him? Is there a clenched fist area right now that we need to allow God some room to work in? Or have we become so convinced that this thing has gotten so out of hand over here or I'm not good enough over here? Have we, have we become so us-centric, so human-minded in our thinking about a particular area or a particular circumstance that we've, that we've completely written off the activity of God, the very place that God wants to work the most in us. Can we with humility say, God, here is my open hand. Do what you will. Oh, worship team, why don't you come on up? We're going to to sing again. As I come up, I'm just going to pray for us.
Father, we thank you for um, your gracious activity in our direction for entering into the chaos of our lives, sometimes introducing it. Um, I, I pray for um, I pray for us to have the perspective of faith, to be able to to see whatever circumstance as um, as a directive from you, a beckoning from you towards faith. And may we not get so in our heads about what faith is or is not, but instead trust the daily simple acts of obedience to what you have called us to is the truest way to express that faith. Thank you that you hang in with us even when we don't feel like hanging in with ourselves. In Jesus' name.